Everything about this moment in history seems uniquely designed to challenge our mental health. We are suffering, we need answers, and we need help. That's why I'm so thrilled to be partnering with Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound to host their new podcast series, Going There. I'm Dr. Mike Friedman, clinical psychologist and life coach. With Going There, I will talk with musicians who struggle with their mental health, just like us. After all, mental illness affects us all. And the same artists who have stepped up to share their wonderful work with us are now sharing the intimate details of their journey in living with mental illness. We are going to ask the tough questions, and we're going to have the difficult conversations, all so that we can learn from each other. But more importantly, to shine a light on the difficult topic of mental illness so that we can all come out of the darkness and get the care we need. So we hope you join us on this journey. Going there, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. It's me, Billy. I mean, I'm going to kill you. I got thrown (laughs) off. I I, I thought I would spice it up. I'm Lara (laughs) Arstall. And I am Mike Snoonian. And we have a special guest joining us today. No, it's not Billy. (laughs) He is a film critic writing for Bloody Disgusting, Anatomy of a Scream, and Grimm. And he's also the co-host of the Horror Queers podcast, Joe Lipset. Welcome to the pod, Joe. Hello. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so excited. Happy holidays! This episode is dropping on Christmas Day, so if that's something you celebrate, Merry Christmas. But we know a lot of you celebrate many different things, so we also want to say Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, Bright Solstice, or just Happy Vacation in Your Pajamas Day. Whatever you are celebrating today, thank you for spending a little bit of that time with us. It really means a lot. And listeners, I hope this isn't weird when I say it. We heard from Santa that you've been very good this year. So this is a bonus comfort horror episode because after this shit show of a year, I think we could all use a little comfort horror. And we define comfort horror as the scary movie that actually makes us feel good. It's the one we come back to when we need to feel better or just want to have a fun, safe scare. And today we are talking about a movie that is rapidly moving up to the top of my holiday comfort horror list. We are talking about the original Black Christmas. Yay! Yay! And I can't wait to talk about this. But before we dig into the movie, we're going to read a brief synopsis um, in case it's been a while since you've seen it. So, Lara... Well, here we go. (laughs) 
I never know how to start. I'll just I know. start. <laughs> <laughs> and we're off. And, right, and exactly. off to the races. All right. <laughs> we begin with a creepy lurker POV shot, and that same creepy lurker climbing up the side of a sorority house during their Christmas party. Yike! We then meet the sorority girls, Jess, Barb, Claire, and Phil, and their wacky house mother, Mrs. Mac. The holiday festivities are interrupted by a weird caller they call the moaner, who says extremely suggestive things in between crying and making terrifying pig noises. While packing for the holiday break, Claire is murdered in her bedroom with plastic wrap wielded by the creepy lurker, who's climbed down from the attic. He carries her body, still wrapped in plastic, up to the attic. The next day, Claire's sorority sisters realize she's disappeared and begin to search for her with the help of her father, boyfriend, and local police, including a young and dreamy John Saxon. Yes. <laughs> I emphasize that. Are you uh, co-signing that one this time? With oh, me? I am. Yes. Daddy Saxon. He is yes. ooh, so great. Lieutenant Hot Daddy. Stuff. Yeah. I, I will always think of him in my heart as Lieutenant Daddy. And <laughs> yum, 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 yum. All right. <laughs> Now to the child murder. Meanwhile, a local girl (laughs) is found murdered in the neighboring park, and the creepy calls continue. Jess informs her boyfriend, Peter, (laughs) that she she is pregnant, but does not want to keep the baby or marry him. And it turns out he has some feelings about all of this, and maybe he's the killer. Dun, dun, dun. As Jess's friends are killed one by one, the police, who earlier bugged the sorority house phone, Realize the calls are coming from inside the house. <clears throat> after, <laughs> after discovering the bodies of Barb and Phil, Jess is attacked by the killer and locks herself in the basement with a fire poker. And in an even worse turn of fate, Peter shows back up, breaking into the basement to try to either protect or murder Jess. We hear screams as the cops arrive and they find a dead Peter lying on top of an injured but still alive Jess, who appears to have killed Peter in self-defense. This means Peter is the murderer, and that's that, right? Because they all just assume everything is fine now. All the cops and parents leave an unconscious Jess alone in the house with the killer. We end with the killer's giggles in the attic, along with the still undiscovered bodies of Claire and Mrs. Mack. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! <laughs> Yay! It's a festivist miracle. Yeah. yeah. Best of us for the rest of us. <laughs> so now let's do a feelings check. And this is where we talk about our first experience with this film and how we feel when we watch it. And Joe, thank you so much for choosing this movie to talk about. Um, and you've said this is an annual watch for you, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I probably watch this every year since I was about 11 or 12 years old. And I am wow. into my late 30s. <laughs> <laughs> we all are here you know? okay good i'm in good company i usually podcast with young people i am the old man of the crew i'm closer to yeah. 50 than 40 officially so nice well i'm Yikes. i'm not in the 30s club anymore so yeah. i'm 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 closer to to 40 than 30 so you know here we all are yes. <laughs> right exactly yep. yes it's good company so you said, did you see it when you were 11 for the first time? I did, yeah. So wow. I like to blame my sister for getting me into horror films. She would oh, basically wow. babysit me when my parents left. And uh, she would inevitably show me the scariest things that she could find. But to her, this movie was always a joke. Like she was obsessed with Olivia Hussey's acting And she thought that a lot of her pronunciations were very funny. So I think to her, this was more of a comedy in a lot of ways. And Mm. 
I, it took me a very long time to come to the realization that this movie is actually horrifying and super feminist and really progressive and Canadian as fuck, which I just love. It's very much my brand. But um, yeah, it, so it's not just that I watch it every Christmas. It's that to me, it's one of the most important horror films because it it almost predates my love of horror. Uh, it's one of the first films that I was exposed to. And I think it's also one of the best. I agree. I think it's fantastic. Um, Mike, what about you? Yeah, I love this movie. I'll go on the record and say that this is probably the best Christmas horror movie there is, period. And there are a lot of fantastic Christmas horror movies. It still holds up to this day. It's the last horror movie that director Bob Clark made. And he's got a trilogy of fantastic horror films with uh, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, Death Dream, and capping it off with Black Christmas. It's just to me, it's so ironic that he has two of the most iconic horror, two of the most iconic Christmas movies of mm -hmm. all time with this and A Christmas Story. And I know it's just wonderful. And to me, like the second article I ever wrote for All Things Horror back in 20, 2009, when I ran that site, was about how much I was in love with Margot Kidder. <laughs> From her iconic turn as Lois Lane to Sisters to the amateur horror, but especially Barb. Like, she is just such a wacky, fun, hysterical, awesome character in the middle of this really serious horror movie. She just brings the chuckles, and she's just, like, a spitfire. So, like, to me, Margot Kidder can do no wrong. I adore her, and she sadly has passed, and we'll talk more about her, I think, when we get into, like, the meat of the episode. Um, mm -hmm. But this is like a an annual watch for me now as well. The first time I watched it was with friends. We had a horror movie night every night, every Sunday night at my house on the projector in Boston back in the mid 2000s. And this is one of the movies we chose with like 10 of us in the living room and just instantly, instantly fell in love with this movie. So highly recommend for our listeners. I know it's streaming on Shutter. Spend an Andrew Jackson and get it on the Blu-ray, the mm. Scream Factory two-disc Blu-ray. It looks stunning, and there are an insane amount of bonus features on it. So pick that up as a little treat for yourself this year. Yeah. Hell yeah. I also love this movie. I watch it. I mean, I, I think I've started watching it every Christmas probably four or five years ago, uh, and now it is one of my annual traditions. I don't, again... <laughs> as always, have no memory of when I first saw this movie. <laughs> and I, I don't know what's happening. Uh, but but I, I mean, I know that I, I loved it instantly and was surprised by it in a lot of ways because it was on, you know, I think probably before I saw it, it was on lists of like, you know, slash the, one of the first slashers and, you know, that kind of thing. And I didn't really know what to expect from it besides some kind of 70s slasher film and it surprised me with how funny it is how uh how much the tone shifts and how um just interesting it is and it, it took I feel like every time I watch it I find something new about it that I appreciate and I think it really took me until this viewing and maybe just because I was sitting and watching it with my analytical hat on and not my it's Christmas time and I'm drinking hat um, <laughs> uh, is that I think I finally can articulate why I think it's so freaking great um, and it just struck me especially with everything going on politically right now like there's just so many it's it's very much a movie of the 70s I think it's brilliant I think that it's it was 
so progressive for the time, much like a lot of 70s cinema that I love. It was really going for the jugular with a lot of stuff. And um, I fucking love it. It just it's there's, there's just a tone, the aesthetic, everything about it just and it really scares me. I think I think I also was watching it with camp goggles at one point. But like this time, especially, I mean, I watched it just again this morning at like 11 a.m. and it was sunny outside and stuff but I was like man you know what this is actually really pretty frightening still and I mean there's Mm -hmm. I'll get into some of the moments of why and you know but it tempers it with a lot of like broad wacky comedy moments and uh but I I just I love this movie absolutely adore it I I do now the first time I watched it actually my first experience with this was on the Bravo's 101 scariest movie moments and so the scene with Claire in the attic which now that I think about it, that show has really spoiled a lot of movies for me, um, <laughs> making some of them easier for me to watch. But um, so I had just heard how great it was, but then it wasn't available for a long time or I couldn't find where it was available for streaming. And I was just not really in a place where I was going to blind buy a movie. But so when Corey and I first started dating, I had told him I'd been trying to find this movie because now it became like a quest for me to try to find it. And he found it for me somewhere. I think it was on like Showtime and we got a subscription for it and we watched it together. So that was kind of like a little nice date night thing for us. And I enjoyed it the first time. I don't think I was quite really ready for what it was doing. And I also was kind of in that place that I've talked about where I wasn't really analyzing horror. I was just kind of along for the ride. And then the second time I watched it, I watched it with someone who really was not down with the pacing. And it was not a great experience to watch it. And this time when I watched it, I was like, this movie is amazing. And I think I finally got it. And I was like, okay, one, it's feminist as fuck, which I love. And I've got a lot of thoughts about that. Spoiler for later. And it's this is like the Christmas horror vibe that I want, you know? And I feel like I've kind of been kind of a Grinch with some of our Christmas horror episodes because I just was really not down with the season this year. But this is like, it's got carolers. It's got like the good snow. It's like the wreaths and like the look of it is so, this is like the, the middle road tone of Christmas and horror that I really want. And also there is a, as much as I hate Peter, man can wear a sweater and okay. I was gonna say there are so many sweaters in this movie I and know. I mean and, and I mean Kier DeLay is one of the most beautiful actors in my opinion oh. I mean I associate him with 2001 but like mm-hmm. in this movie I mean he's like if we could just ignore everything that's coming out of his mouth like he's right. fine as fuck and, so, and he's yeah. playing a piano I know sweatily. oh my gosh not well I'm though so point out. not well I know <laughs> yeah yeah. I wrote, well, I'll, I'll save my notes experience for his <laughs> piano playing because I had a, my high school boyfriend would play piano for me all the time. So I was like, ooh, sweater and a piano. Oh, no. <laughs> I feel like we're Ch- getting Chickle- a glimpse into Jen's uh, like <laughs> bad men decisions. Like, yep. oh, piano oh, and a sweater. <laughs> yeah, I totally would have dated him and regretted it and would be telling that story on th- this episode. I, I would have been opinion. hardcore <laughs> attracted to him. Like, oh, he's neurotic and sensitive piano player who wears these turtles turtlenecks like I'm into uh-huh. it and then I would have been like slowly like oh no <laughs> right I mean I can't really I can't really fall to because I would follow Barb around like a puppy dog <laughs> you know what I mean like mm-hmm. also understandable <laughs> also like allow her to like r- break my heart every week 
Mm-hmm. You know, maybe yeah. this time will be the time she acknowledges me. <laughs> there are a lot of really beautiful 70s people in this movie, God. you know, because yeah. I even like Claire's boyfriend with that gigantic, like, oh my God, that coat, wolf you know? jacket or. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, it's just me. This is where Does he look like Peter Dinklage? He does look I like do. Peter Couldn't Dinklage. Stop thinking. And I think it was the coat too put me in the mind of Game of Thrones. <laughs> yes. And I was yeah. like, he just looks like his face is the same as Peter Dinklage's face. It's all I could think about this time. No, I thought like a little bit like Sasha Jensen from Days and Confused in uh, Halloween 4. And apparently he still has that jacket yeah. and it's hanging in his house. Mm-hmm. Nice. Really? Yeah. Hey, I would keep it too. It's It probably is very warm also. I would break that out for special occasions. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Just Kids wear that in and bed. no shirt under it, a lot of jewelry. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And the hockey mask too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which side note, that's the weirdest hockey mask I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. I also have seen like five people actually play hockey because, you know, I'm in the South. But Oh, he's very much an actor and not an actual hockey player because his goalkeeping is terrible. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't think he stops a single puck. I don't think so either. Yeah. But he did um, score a goal to my heart. Oh. <laughs> so- <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm in a very strange mood. It's all the sweaters. They're just getting to me. Yeah. This is like the thirstiest episode already, <laughs> and we're about 15 minutes in. I'm going to take credit Jen for that. Jen is like, excellent. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Thank you for bringing this into our lives, Joe. <laughs> Joe, if at some point you can find a way to reference Chris Sarandon. Oh, Ooh. with pleasure. You, know, you just like, did, be, Mike. You just did. <laughs> it'll just be working in somehow and like, whoo. Oh, my God. Are you trying to give me the vapors? The Chris Sarandon sweater <laughs> game from Fright Night? Like, yes. I need a fan. Oh, my gosh. So speaking of sweaters and dreaminess, uh, let's get specific. <laughs> uh, what do we love about Black Christmas and why do we find it comforting? And I've already talked about sweaters. But we also see a fantastic sweater that I would want to wear also because oh, it's is it the oh, hand? Yeah, the hand sweater? sweater. Yeah, yes. I love that fucking sweater. And with like yeah. the yellow collar yeah. and the yellow pants. It is a look. Yeah. Oh, it's like It is, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And Joe, you posted a picture or some images from burlesque, right? I did. I never made the connection until I saw somebody else post it. And I thought, I've seen that look before, the black and white hands, you know, kind of dichotomy bit. And I realized, mm-hmm. yeah, Christina Aguilera has a whole number in burlesque, the terrible slash I love it to bits burlesque movie we share <laughs> she has a whole number where she wears an outfit just like that really I'll That's have really... to check it out just, I know just that, I haven't just seen that, that. yeah <laughs> <I'll> just... <laughs> I will I will take your word on that one. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say you uh, um so what is it that we love Joe what would you say is your favorite part or the thing that you find the most comforting about this movie uh the thing for me is that I'm really driven by characters and character arcs in horror film mm-hmm. and I honestly feel like Black Christmas has one of the best set of characters I firmly believe that these girls are real sorority sisters that they have relationships that they care their bickering feels so authentic the playfulness even like when they present mrs mack her uh, her christmas gift and it's just this absolutely atrocious you know dress that like <laughs> Paisley, weird. or something and you're just <laughs> yeah. thinking mm-hmm. this is awful and you can feel the enthusiasm that they have for one another just in those little moments and the film gives them opportunities to breathe and interact and relate to one another in ways that you don't see like Lori, you mentioned this is a very 70s movie and jen you talked about the pacing and those mm-hmm. are two things that i sometimes 
feel a bit of a nostalgic yearning for because we don't see this in contemporary horror films. We've got to get to the next mm. kill. You know, we've got to spend more time with the killer, not the girls. And yes. I'm, I don't want to do a ton of comparisons, but like when I watched the 2006 remake, I love those girls and we get no time with them. And they just seem like shrill harpy bitches like i love the actresses but i don't love those characters and then when mm. you look at the 1974 version these girls are just they're great like you would totally want to spend time with them it's why we've talked about how much we would love to date them or hang around this sorority house with them i completely completely agree i mean one thing i just kept like writing in my notes was like it's so real and i think that every it feels very authentic even at moments where the characters say things that rub me the wrong way because it was the 70s you know <laughs> like <laughs> such as like you can't get raped by a townie oh. um, but which is one of the knife in my lines. heart <laughs> i know uh, especially because i love that character so much and then she's actually a very tragic mm-hmm. character in a lot of ways mm-hmm. but um but i i forgive it because it, it does. It just feels so authentic. It feels like real dialogue. It feels like real people talking. And it, and it was kind of before horror became so templatized where you had these mm-hmm. sort of stock characters, especially in something like a sorority. It almost feels like those stereotypes hadn't had time to grow in the American or Canadian mind yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, uh, and this just feels they just all feel like real people. And I fucking love it. And I love I love the pacing. I'm also just a huge fan of 70s movies in general. And yeah. I mean, everything about it. So 100% agree. Yeah. I'm going to also say that these feel like real persons. And I think that's something that Bob Clark does so well in his best work. You know, he said, like, look, like, I wanted to make them college students. And college kids are pretty bright. Like, they're a little bit older. They've seen some more things. They're out on their own. They're a bit more responsible. You know, I wanted to have that in my movie and I wanted to show that and I wanted to bring those personalities out. I think we all know this movie is kind of being the precursor to John Carpenter's Halloween. And, you know, there's the argument like, what is the first slasher? Um, which and that's not an argument I, I want to make. But what I will say is given the trajectory of like Bob Clark's career and like his ability to wrangle really wry humor out of situations like there's a real twinkle to different parts of this mm-hmm. movie that uh, just like Barb in the background, like feeding. Oh my God. Feeding that boy to like a yes. small boy, <laughs> yeah. you know, and the, the look of, of horror on the dad's face when he's doing that. But, and you know, Miss Mac, like putting her hand on the uh, peace sign where the couple is making love. And she's like, <laughs> feebly trying to hide it Mm -hmm. bob clark could have directed halloween and at one point there was talk so he might i don't think john carpenter could do a christmas story and that's not to say that bob clark is a better director than i'm sorry than john carpenter because i think john carpenter is a brilliant talent that brings a-list talent to b movies Mm -hmm. but i think like the scope of what clark is capable of doing and how he understands people and how he understands caricature without making it so broad that it becomes unrecognizable is a real, I mean, even Porky's, which it's a movie we'll never get to for many reasons. (laughs) Um, But was a staple of like six-year-old me, like sneaking downstairs to watch parts of it. He just understands how to like, you know, and I think Miss Mac was based on his own aunt that hid liquor everywhere in the home. Mm -hmm. Um, He's able to really paint people in really broad strokes but do it in such a way that you still recognize the humanity in them Mm -hmm. so they're not just a punchline like barb now 
would be just like Stifler, basically, in the American yeah. Pie yeah. movies. Where It'd it's be just insufferable. Like, played as a joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You would root for that character to die as opposed to like, it's horrifying. Yeah, when she dies in this movie, it really is. And I, so. and I was gonna say, and that, that, like the way that they, that using the broad comedy and using those kind of moments of lighthearted mm-hmm. twinkliness is what mm-hmm. makes the deaths so upsetting, you know? Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's it, there's these tonal shifts, and sometimes it's, yeah. you know, it goes from I can't remember exactly, but like Mrs. Mac, like you know gargling with bath you know toilet whiskey mm-hmm. to like the face <laughs> the face of claire you know with the plastic mm-hmm. sucked in mm-hmm. and the, in the rocking chair and those and those orchestral hits you know yeah. that come with them and like i don't know it's just like it's so jarring and upsetting mm-hmm. and i and you it does they don't function without each other no right and i won't say that this movie is um better than halloween number one because rothman will kick us off the network if we say <laughs> that. yeah we'll all be fired oh can i make that claim <laughs> <laughs> Yes, go for it. Yeah, I think Halloween is a it's Halloween is like a near perfect film, but this is a far more disturbing movie. Yes, to me than Halloween. It is. It really gets under the skin in a way that very few movies, even after like a dozen times of watching it, there's just something that it's hard to put the finger on. Mm -hmm. But it really gets the hair in the back of my neck standing up every time I watch it. Yeah. And if I look at Halloween and Black Christmas, and I'm not really going to make a judgment call because I think I like both of them for different reasons, yeah. you know. But what the thing that is very notable to me in Black Christmas is that we never find out who the killer is and we really don't ever see the killer. And I think that kind of go is part of how all of the other characters are so developed because if you look at how much time we spend if you look at how much time we spend in Halloween focused on Michael like that's it's a good half or close to half Mm -hmm. of the movie and here it's all like just the other characters and I think that's where we can really kind of focus on the the tragedy but also like the humanity Um, Barb's death is heartbreaking but I love how it's like interplaying with this caroling you know and it's just so it's brilliantly done Mm -hmm. yeah and to to talk about barb like that character she's presented as very like sexual Mm -hmm. but we never see Mm -hmm. her with a man i don't think unless i missed something which is i think another thing like a remake of this an actual remake of this i think would really Mm -hmm. dig into and and i say that i have not seen the new one and i have not seen all of the 2006 remake a big part of it was because i was really put off by billy and Mm -hmm. i love that we don't see him at all in this one right yeah i haven't watched the remakes for the same reason i'm just like i was like i don't want to have this ruined for me yeah they're they're honestly distinct enough that you can watch them and be like this is title Mm -hmm. only like they're they're really Really? each doing their own thing yeah i think the 2019 movie jen would be it would jam really i I have been meaning to watch it and i have not avoided it for any reason especially since i Mm -hmm. love image and poots but i just Mm -hmm. it's just one that didn't I haven't I haven't watched it yet. Yeah, Maybe tonight's to the night though. Maybe I'll watch yeah. it tonight too. Yeah. Oh yay. <laughs> we t- Let's pause the show and come back <laughs> exactly. in ninety minutes. Ninety five minutes later. I do want to circle back to what you said though, Jen, because I mentioned I feel like the characters are real, they're authentic, they're relatable. The other thing is that they are sexual. And that's hugely mm-hmm. important. Like if you look at this film, like, okay, so whenever the internet debates spring up and the horror bros talk about how horror is not political, this is my go-to movie. Like, mm-hmm. I I can't watch this movie and not see the politics in it. And 
I love that Hussey and Clark are both apparently on record as saying like, oh, you know, we didn't intend for it to be a message film. Right. And I don't care about that because as an audience member, I don't think you can watch this movie and not take away the political messages about women's bodies and women's sexuality and women's agencies. And as a person who was raised by primarily my mother, and I had an older sister who was hugely instrumental in crafting my taste, this movie to me is hugely important for understanding and respecting and valuing women. And like, again, you're, you just, you have to praise what these actresses are bringing to the role and what Bob Clark wrote for them to work with. Mm-hmm. Totally. I, I have, a, I, this was like, the, this was the thing that occurred to me uh, during this watch that made me realize why I enjoy it so much because in the past, I was always like, oh, this actually does a really good job depicting what it's like to be a woman that's getting like harassed and stalked and all this and to, and that uncomfortable feeling that comes with it. And I had acknowledged that, but it, I, it never really occurred to me. This movie came out in 1974. 1973 was Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. This is absolutely responding, yes. much like a lot of 70s cinema to that like post-Vatican II social upheaval, upheaval in air quotes kind of thing. Um, and I think that this movie reckons way more directly with violence against women as a result of fear of women's autonomy and sexuality Mm. than any of the slashers that followed. I would argue that maybe the slasher genre wouldn't have happened the way that it did without Roe v. Wade and the occurrence of this Mm -hmm. movie right on the tail of it. Because, I mean, it's textually, you know, there's the line, uh, you know, the the whole abortion subplot is happening. You know, when I say abortion subplot, I mean, she doesn't want to keep the baby. He's Mm -hmm. almost threatening her over over it yeah and and i there's no almost yeah he directly is and he threatens her over it so so i think that you know both both textually and subtextually it's about it's about that that is at the heart of this movie and i think all of the other slasher films that came with their set of morals about women's you know if if a character has sex they get killed yada yada I, i i would almost argue that that is all stemming from what was going on subtextually in this movie you know and um and this movie just was happening at such a time. And also, I was like, I just started thinking about all these things that were going on. And 74 is when Ted Bundy did all of those, his sorority murders mm-hmm. in, yeah. in Florida. So there was really something in the zeitgeist going on with this. And this movie was just, obviously all movies are a simulacrum, but like this was closer to the beating heart of that moment in America or fuck in Canada. Um, and just, you know, uh, it, you know, in, in the West, I mean, these things were permeating just, everyone's thoughts at that time and Mm -hmm. i just think whether they intended to or not it is 100 percent a byproduct of that and that is so cool and just it just all comes together wonderfully and i love it yeah it's funny you mentioned ted bundy because when this movie was supposed to make its debut on network television it's like the movie of the week Mm -hmm. it happened to like it was going to debut like literally a week after what became known later as Ted Bundy had gone in and killed a number of women in sororities. Mm-hmm. And they were asked to like put, they actually pushed back the broadcast debut of it. Mm-hmm. A l- couple little things that struck me as well, like rewatching it. What really hit me was the scene in the precinct where uh, the women have already gone into Sergeant Nash and said like, our friend is missing. What can you do? And he really poo-poos them. Yeah. And it's like, maybe she ran off with a boy. Maybe, you oh, know, yeah. who knows? Maybe she's just gallivanting. And then a, a, a mother goes in, the mother of the uh, teen girl that we never see, 
who falls victim to the killer. And the mother's like, you know, my child is missing. And the officer presumes to know the child better than the mother does. Well, you know, maybe she's just gone for a few hours. And the mom's like, that doesn't happen Mm -hmm. in our house. But they're completely, the concerns of the women are completely cast aside. It's only when Claire's boyfriend comes into the Mm -hmm. precinct and is like, what the hell is going on here? That he's a me, oh, a girl is missing? Well, come with us, sir. We're going to take care of this right now. Mm -hmm. Like, how, like, and again, we talk about this a lot, and that's one of the points of the 2019 remake is is Believe Women. Mm -hmm. Um, How, even in 1974, how explicit that is laid out um, in the text. And also how Claire sticks to her guns. Mm -hmm. Like, when she says, I'm not having this baby, and I don't want to be with you anymore, there's never a moment where she wavers in that commitment to do what she wants. Mm-hmm. And when when Peter says, I'm leaving the conservatory and we're just going to get married, she goes, well, just because you've changed your mind about the things you want to do in life, don't presume that I've changed my mind about the things I want to do. And I love that this character has that strength and that autonomy in a movie that is, God, 46 years mm-hmm. old. Yeah. And it's something that we don't get right now. Well, and I want to say, too, like, it is huge and important that we have characters in movies say, I want to have an abortion or this is something that I'm doing because it normalizes abortion. And I think the biggest hurdle we have in people actually seeing abortion as healthcare Mm -hmm. is because people who have them don't talk about it because they're afraid of the stigma. And like, Mm -hmm. so, so many people think, oh, I don't know anybody who's had an abortion. And you probably do. They just don't Mm -hmm. tell you. You definitely do. Every man knows a woman who's had an abortion. And every man knows a woman who has been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted. Right. And I love this movie. Yep, yep. And I love this because it's sometimes really hard to explain why harassing phone calls feel scary or why they're like a violation. And I feel like these calls are so disturbing. Like the first one. yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. And and then I'm going to kill you. And just the deadpan of that. Yeah. It's, it's I get I'm, I have goosebumps right now just thinking about it because that it's just so perfect and I think you know I've like any woman have experienced my share of like creepy comments and things like and that just it's obviously like a very it would be a very bad example if that were to happen to you but it just somehow boils down the essence of that feeling mm-hmm. into a phone call and the I was I said the sound design in this movie I haven't really fully appreciated before it's fucking excellent down mm-hmm. from those phone mm-hmm. calls to the way that the soundtrack is woven in and out and in and out to like the way that the very last shot of the outside of the house, the phone call ringing, getting progressively louder and louder. It does so many things that work mm-hmm. on you psychologically. And I'm, yeah. it's, I'm doing the Italian chef. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also yeah. using the piano as background sounds when mm-hmm. she's listening, like that totally implies that Peter's the killer. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like very similar to when he smashed the piano, which I have some thoughts on for later. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but when I think about it being feminist, like I didn't, put it together with the passage of Roe v. Wade. But I think like a huge part of birth control is that women had the ability to have sex like 
just to enjoy it and not get trapped in this like caregiving role. And there's nothing wrong with being a caregiver or having a baby. It's just, it's so limit your options. And I think like, because Jess has the ability to have this abortion or she has access to that care, she doesn't have to make this huge life decision based on very limited options. And I think that's, it just blows my mind that like, we don't keep seeing that like it feels like this is a big step forward and then we were just so afraid of it and one of the things I love about slashers and final girls in general is that the way that it explores what it means to be feminine and strong as a woman and and I don't always like I have some problems with it too sometimes because there's the whole drop the knife phenomenon which is basically this woman is too powerful she is become too much like a man we have to revert her back to being a woman and I don't feel like this movie ever really does that because I don't feel like Jess ever takes on the persona of the killer because we never see the killer so she is just herself and I have a theory about like when I watched this movie the first time and actually every time I think oh she killed Peter because she didn't want to deal with his bullshit anymore and this was her opening <laughs> you know and I don't really think that <laughs> I did have that thought mm-hmm. at some point I was like oh she would probably feel so bad that she killed him after she realizes that he's not the real killer but then I was like yeah he's also being very threatening and there's I mean I would have felt right. threatened by him Regardless, I mean, that call and then him showing up, breaking a window, like, I mean, what what was he going to do at that point besides beat the shit out of her or, or strangle right. her to death in a fit of rage because he's already shown that he's unstable? Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, I would have been very scared of this guy, even if all the other stuff wasn't happening. Right. He, he breaks into the house. Like, he doesn't know that she's in the basement. Like, I think it's important to note, like, when he, he breaks into the house and enters it and he sees her as he's kind of moving through the basement. So like you, you got to figure he's already got bad intentions. And I don't think I watched this movie and ever thought Peter was the killer. I know that it's kind of hinted yeah. at. I think one of the things I appreciate about like the subtext of this movie is it sets men in particular up as very, there are different kinds of threats yeah. that they can represent that, you know, it's not just the person with disassociation making gibbering phone calls hiding in your attic that there are clean cut upstanding persons as well who can kill you with their best intentions Mm -hmm. and then um, persons like nash who through ignorance really and through just kind of being dismissive cause a lot more harm i mean that's every bit is destructive at that point like he might not be holding that unicorn above barb in that moment but through his own kind of like not taking what they're saying serious um he's put them in a really bad position in my notes i wrote nash equals real cops john saxon equals what we wish cops were (laughs) that's my only my only note on that (laughs) except i found myself yelling in my notes at john saxon after he overhears the conversation with peter about not wanting to keep the baby i was like it I understand Uh how this is like, yes, you need to know this information because he might be a suspect, but like back off. Like this is an intrusive thing. I I just, the tone that he asked her in really bugged me, even though he looked so beautiful doing it. (laughs) Well, when he says like, you need to tell me this. Yeah. He's pressuring her. What I, how I took, yeah. How, how I took that scene. I maybe a little different is that he was, he's, he doesn't judge her for like not wanting to keep the baby. Like there's never like a, a moment where he's, but he's like, 
oh, wait a minute, he's threatening you. And he heard like the on the call someone say like the baby over mm. and over. So he's he's in cop mode, like he's putting two and two together, like this disembodied voice in the phone is saying the baby the baby the Mm -hmm. baby and your partner is threatening you for wanting to abort the baby that's how i took that i I had the same read of it i thought you know i probably would have felt put off by it too if i had been in jess's shoes but i felt like he was just doing his thing and he is you know ultimately still a patriarchal figure with good even though he actually has good intentions but you know by the end of it they still don't look in the fucking attic they still drop the fucking ball so right. you know at the yeah. end of the day yeah. <laughs> I've, yeah i love the revisionist readings where people have tried to explain no no she's fine because obviously the police will eventually search the attic and they will discover the other bodies and you're mm-hmm. just like okay like that is not in the film we can't make those yeah. kinds of judgment calls <laughs> right. I, right i do want to circle back to the piece about abortion because i do not to be the proud Canadian on the podcast, <laughs> I think it's very important to acknowledge that this is a Canadian movie and not an American film, because I think if it was mm-hmm. an American film, there wouldn't be the word abortion in there, and there probably wouldn't even really be these kinds of discussions, like, not nuanced to this level. And I'm mm-hmm. not going to say, like, Canada, we're so much better in every way, but with I regard will. to I, this, it's... like, yeah. the U.S. <laughs> has a long history of eliding the word abortion and just strictly speaking the the religious intermingling with politics in your country unfortunately mm-hmm. like i literally watched movies about abortion this year one of my favorite films from 2020 was never sometimes really always and it it feels revolutionary because it's about a teenage girl getting an abortion and the lengths that she has to go to take ownership of her body. And, uh, you know, watching this from 1974, (laughs) like, Black Christmas feels more progressive than this movie in 2020. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. No, I I mean, I, as an American, I agree. And it's something that infuriates me about Mm -hmm. our country is, is our inability to actually, even in secular Hollywood or even you know and i think we all have to some degree internalized these stigmas that we've we've grown up with i mean i know i certainly have like it's it's for a while i still feel slightly uncomfortable talking about abortion even though i'm obviously pro-choice and and you know and and i'm I'm no way religious but it's like it's just so seeded into your brain and i'm really stuck now on this idea that like slashers are actually about punishing women for for sexual autonomy and bodily autonomy you know Mm -hmm. um and like this movie is the only one that states plainly what it's actually about Mm-hmm. And all these others, that, especially the ones in the 70s and 80s, were still just kind of subconsciously reckoning with it. And uh, I don't know. That Maybe I'll write an essay one day. <laughs> I won't. Yeah. I'm lazy. Uh, but but what, yeah. What's fascinating, though, is that I, I wonder how the slasher narrative would have changed had this film made its way into the U.S. at its intended release date, as opposed to getting delayed and having to undergo all these terrible title changes and coming mm. out after Halloween makes its splash. Like, again, no offense to, to Rothman, but I do wonder <laughs> if we would look at Black Christmas the way that we talk about Halloween and the cultural renaissance that it generated. Like, I wonder if Black Christmas had to come out first and had that box office, what we would be talking about with regard to slashers now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, because there's a reading and I don't particularly subscribe to this, but there I feel like Halloween is so bare 
in a great way that you can read a lot of things into right. it based on your own kind of experiences, which is part of why I love it. But it also kind of lends itself to this um, patriarchal reading mm -hmm. of like, oh, well, she is killed because she had sex. And again, that's kind of a, an oversimplification of the slasher genre or slasher messages but it's stuck for a reason yeah. because american slashers don't want to cross the line that black christmas did that i'm now like realizing how important i think it is is that like laura i love how you said it they say it you know halloween does not say that mm -hmm. halloween like tiptoes up to that line and then yes here's a strong woman but again we have to have a man rescue her you know and and again, not knocking Halloween because I love it. And there's a lot of really like I, I love Final Girls and I love looking at that. But this is just a, a kind of I think it, I love it because it's not American. And we didn't like Americanize it up to mm -hmm. just fit into our patriarchy, because what that is, is really just a fear of female power yeah. and female autonomy. And our nation just cannot fucking handle that even today right now that we have packed the supreme court with people who want to overturn roe v wade almost 50 years later yeah. like they mm -hmm. really want to go back to fucking like you know prehistoric times i can't stand it yeah i know you can't put There's the genie can't... back in the fucking bottle slash it was never in the bottle like right 50 percent right. mm -hmm. of the population are women and somehow we think no. it's okay to say that women are what a secondary citizen it's absolutely ridiculous and like you watch something like black christmas and it just reinforces women are smart women are capable they can take care of themselves they can make mm -hmm. their own decisions like mike you you referenced uh how peter tries to say like oh well you can still do all these things that you want we'll just get married and jen like i mm -hmm. think even one minute later you were just like yeah you can but it does limit your options like you mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I love the messaging that this film subtly does as well as implicitly does. Like it screams abortion, but it also says women can make their own fucking decisions. Leave them alone to make them. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I love hearing a man say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yes, uh, yeah. if you want to, I'll sneak all of us into Canada. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Please, God, oh, get me God. out of here. <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, Folks, keep politics out of this podcast, please. <laughs> right. So, I am the so I you know what's ironic is you meant Joe, you mentioned talk keeping politics out and pointing to this movie in 2019 when there was the whole kerfluffle with the new Black Christmas movie before it came out and Joe Bob Briggs was like, "I don't get why politics are in movies." So I am the guy he wrote about in his first Fangoria column, calling me an asshole and sending oh, his nice. followers on me because I called I I called him a dinosaur that really needs to kind of hang it up. I mean I used some language that was a bit ageist, <laughs> but sometimes I get my hackles very rarely get up, but they did. So I'm the one he called out for that. I oh, got yeah. some fun. Yeah. I'm sure you got some messages from messages Peter equivalents, over right? That. Oh yeah, it was great. Well, <laughs> Well, speaking of Peter, can we talk about Peter and how dreamy I find him, but also was horrified <laughs> right. by how attracted right. I was to no, him? No, because... you have to talk to us Whoa. about the piano-destroying scene. You can't just talk about how beautiful his hair and sweater game is. Well, that was my... I was like, I love a man who plays piano. I hate a man who smashes a piano. Also, that's not your piano. No. And that thing probably costs like... Like yeah. 10 grand or so something. Oh, yeah. yeah. I would yeah. say maybe even 20. Like... Uh -huh. it, 
that's that's a nice piano. Like you're and going to jail. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And oh, and I mean, you know, he does look dreamy when he does it. But and that's the last time I'm going to say it. I promise. <laughs> so here's this is this is the only inch I'm going to give Peter in the whole podcast. Okay. I think Jess ha- had had to tell him her decision and yeah. had to let him know that she could have waited until after he had to do his decision. Absolutely. I agree yeah. with that. Yes. She had okay. poor timing. You know, <laughs> yes. Yes. He was like, you know, he, he says like, do you know how important today is to me? Like, look, it's really, I mean, we, I don't know. Everyone here has probably gotten like bad news right before they've had to go and do something really important and then done fucked it up. Like if I had one quibble with Jess, one quibble is that like, can you wait until the man yeah. does his thing? Because you see his performance after that, and it's, it's an angry. Oh yeah, yes. it's like very rock and messy. <laughs> yeah, I listened to nothing but like a bunch of like white dudes that play three chords really loud in basements. <laughs> like if it's if it's you know like I listen to fast punk rock and that's really about it. And even I'm like, ooh, that doesn't sound good. Like, I know enough about music to know that. Well, and it's the sweating, I think, that that really implies the mistakes. And he keeps like, like, like he's like squinting a lot and like, "Ah, ah," like, you know, (laughs) it's like, uh, if I was that that crew, I'd be like, actually, your Mm -hmm. playing is technically pretty proficient, but we were worried about Mm -hmm. your emotional stability. Exactly. (laughs) Want to take a breath, you know, and it's not a recital. It looks like it's probably a jury. So they could have rescheduled it. Now, I will say I got dumped the week before my senior recital in college. And um, he but my boyfriend, I still somehow convinced him to come to the recital and I was singing. I know, man. It was there was a whole thing. Jen was uh, college. Jim was very <laughs> manipulative. <laughs> Anyways, but I was singing a song called "Our Last Goodbye," and I was looking at him, and I was like, ah. <laughs> "It went okay." But yeah, I did. <laughs> I, I still. I mean, passed, I graduated. So I'm okay. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I am not a classical opera singer right now, though. Um, but. Yeah, I was watching that and I was like, yeah, you could have waited. Because like I feel like they have a conversation where it implies that he won't leave her alone. Mm-hmm. It's like, but you, you brought this up and, you know. Could have waited like five to seven hours. Yeah, Still does not mean it's okay to smash that piano. No. Right. He, I mean, he has to drop the, out of school the, now because he got kicked out and he owes them $20,000. Yes. So. Right. Right. The gentleman who scored the movie, I, I'm drawing a blank on his name. What I do like is there is such a discordant score to this that he actually tied like things mm-hmm. like spoons and forks and other things to the strings of the piano so that when it was played, it would be, it would sound so discordant. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. I mean, I do feel like the music yeah. really is. And I've said this already. It's very effective in this movie. It, it, it's one of those. It, it hits certain tones and just does something where the hair on the back of your neck is raised the whole time. And I, I yeah. love it. Well, and mm-hmm. that group of carolers, that is a good acapella choir. Mm-hmm. Like, it's I, not easy if, to sing outside in if unison a bunch of, like that. If a bunch of kids showed up, I literally had this moment while I was watching it where, like, you stick your head out and they're all singing and you're like, oh, damn, these kids can sing. And then when they all hit that harmony, like, right at the climax of it, I would have been like, whoa, what the fuck I know. is happening? Take like, all my are, money. Who are these fucking kids? Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Usually, because I've directed a lot of kids' choirs, and usually it is terrible, especially if it's outside. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it's cold. Yeah. My daughter has done choir, 
And like what was really neat, I'm gonna brag about my kid because she rules. Like when her section was done, and like like when the third graders were done, she ran up to the fourth graders and high five all of them. Was like, you got That's this. So cool. Yeah, That's cute. just little Aww. little ham. I like to imagine that the reason that they're so good is because their bum member is the girl who died in the park. So they're just like, oh my god, the person who's tone deaf is out of the group. <laughs> A lot we of got, murders we got that are rid just of the convenient dead in this movie. Like, <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, your choir is only as strong as its weakest link, you know, and lots of times that's... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to throw any shade to any specific voice parts, but... <laughs> lots of times it's sopranos. We're getting into the very specific uh, choir gripes part of the podcast. But <laughs> right. <laughs> um, uh, do we want to talk about Barb at all as a character? I feel like... Yeah. I don't think Mike wants to talk about Barb, right? <laughs> I, I think... <laughs> Barb coming down the stairs, two buttons undone, whiskey in hand, like, oh my God, how do you not absolutely fall yeah. in love with her right away? And I, one of the things I love is that the movie allows the reactions of the women, Barb's in particular, to the yeah. calls mm-hmm. to be different. That it's not this like monolithic voice. Like, you know, Barb kind of yeah. thinks it's a hoot. You know, I mean, she like hears these and she's like, this is you know, like high entertainment for her at this, at this. And even when like Claire disappears and it's kind of made pretty clear that her and she had been given Claire yeah. kind of a hard time, like kind of probably hazed her, you know, I think in a lot of ways that she still can like get a joke or a zing in, even though she's like really, she's out there trying to find her. Like she's not saying, eh, she'll be fine. And I think that a lesser movie would have done that. It would have like had Barb, kind of like stay behind while everyone mm-hmm. else went to look for her but she still has it's just her nature mm-hmm. to fuck with people so when she can see what a mark that like sergeant nash is she oh my God, the gives him bag. like the fellatio <laughs> yeah, yeah. <Yes>. Pretty good. <laughs> it's like yeah. and then when later on when like you know when when the other cops like see the gag and burst out laughing and he's like, what? She just gave it to me earlier today. And you're like, oh, and again, it's <laughs> that yourself deeper. Bob Clark twinkle, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And I think Clark, you know, I would love to see like what was on the page versus once he had Marco Kidd mm-hmm. there, how much he kind of let her run with it mm-hmm. overall. And again, like feeding the kid boots, just so like she's got it like, yeah. it's just, it's wonderful. It's really, it. It's the most, aside from Billy, I think it's the most memorable part of this movie is any time that she's on screen. Mm-hmm. She's extremely memorable. And like, I, I, my reactions to her, she, as a character, I find myself vacillating between like adoring her and being and like hating her, you know, because mm-hmm. she is, she's kind of an asshole. Oh, she, she's a total she says asshole. Fu- she's, yeah, she mm-hmm. says fucked up things, but like you get these moments alone with her where she goes and calls some, I think somebody from her family calls and it's kind of mm-hmm. implied that like, She's had it rough and she drinks to numb the pain. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think she's she's definitely like played both her and Miss Mrs. Mac as alcoholics, you know. But I love that they're um, different they do- drunks. They're different kinds yeah, of yeah, drunks. Yeah, totally even, different right? drunks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing that's one note in this movie. And I noticed for the first time, I don't think I ever picked up on this before, uh, but the wreath on Barb's door has little booze yes. bottles in it. I'm yeah. like, she likes drinking a lot, doesn't she? You uh-huh. know? Um, and but I, I she cracks open a beer in the police station. <laughs> I and I mean I find her character just very um I, I don't know, sympathetic on some level because she's clearly mm-hmm. just got a lot going on and they managed to get all of that information across to you as a viewer without 
spelling it out or giving you any exposition um, and it doesn't take up a ton of screen time but you you read all of this and down to her having this like meltdown while the dad is sitting there worried about her his daughter missing and she oh. and she's you know but again she just refuses to not be honest and she just says we're all thinking it she's probably dead mm-hmm. and it's like whoa take it down yeah go to sleep for real barb but mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it's still i don't know just that 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 whole characterization is so fascinating to me and margot kidder obviously delivers a fucking amazing performance Mm -hmm. i I really like the character just i would like to see more of her kidder would go on to have some like very public mental health crises Mm -hmm. yes one of the things i distinctly remember as a kid i remember i bought like robin williams a night at the met stand-up comedy special on cassette and like he made light of the struggles that he had it's like one of the bits Mm -hmm. that he had and it's a brief one-off joke but it always like stuck with me. And I think it was like 1999 or 2000 where like she basically disappeared yep. for about a week and then was like found in a really disheveled state. And she went on to spend her remaining years like being a real advocate for mental health and for in particular um, what we now know as bipolar yeah. disorder, mm. um, which she had been diagnosed with years before, but had never really sought treatment for it. And she went on to be like a real pillar for um, mental health and and wellness. So I, you know, aside from like, in all honesty, she is probably the out of all the like 70s actresses, like the one I I have always had like the biggest crush on. Like I just as like a mental health there as a therapist and counselor, like have nothing but respect for Miss Skinner. But yeah, Yeah. God, (laughs) could she deliver i mean an iconic performance well, she's one half of one of the hottest 70s couples in horror in the amityville horror there we go Ooh, the two of them <laughs> i thought you meant her lowest i lady also Clark thought that's Kent. where you're going to go she's had a bunch of very <laughs> successful pairings she yes. has yes mm-hmm. lucky her um i mm-hmm. would like to circle back to the scene that laura mentioned um laura when you said that she's got that breakdown in front of mr harrison I never realized how significant that scene is. It's actually my new favorite Mm -hmm. scene in this movie because of what it tells us about Barb without telling us anything. So on a first Mm -hmm. watch, I always just thought it was Barb being a hysterical drunk and you get these great kind of non-plus reactions from Phil. We haven't talked about Andrea Martin. She's also amazing. But um, Mm -hmm. I never realized that the reason that Barb has this outrageous reaction in front of everyone, it's not just because she's drunk it's because she's so guilty to the way that she talked to claire before so Mm -hmm. that's not her saying oh you're all thinking it it's her saying i feel responsible i drove claire to this i'm the reason that claire is dead and that is so powerful like Mm -hmm. and she does it well literally being drunk because apparently uh (laughs) margot kidder insisted on playing the drunk parts drunk Mm mm-hmm Oh, oh really? Do- oh, doing yeah. it method. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow. There was uh real whiskey in that glass. Maybe that's why it feels so authentic. Go go. You don't, right. you, don't you don't get that baritone real husky <laughs> voice. That's drinking true. apple juice on set, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and we talked about how they're like mature characters and they're older and they're not in high school, but like college kids are still pretty young and oh, yeah. the thing mm-hmm. she says about raping a townie, it breaks my heart, but like kids that age say stupid stuff and mm-hmm. I she just feels like a very real character and I hadn't really thought about that scene either 
But yeah, she's probably thinking and you're all thinking it's my fault as well. Mm -hmm. And the scene I think I really liked a lot that I don't think we would get in a lot of other movies is the scene where she has her asthma attack. Right. And Mm -hmm. um, Jess goes to help her through that. And I think that's just a really sweet, tender scene. You get the impression that they've done it before. Right. Like yeah. this isn't mm-hmm. something where like Jessa isn't frantic. She doesn't she doesn't not know what to do. She goes in and she very clearly is like, here's your inhaler because we've done this before because Barb, you're constantly mm-hmm. getting drunk and having asthma attacks. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if I look at like PJ, PJ Soul's character in Halloween, like they I think they are two kind of similar roles in this. But I feel like PJ Soul, she never loses that persona that she has of like the the girl mm-hmm. who plays it fast with her dreamy boyfriend with those hot glasses mm-hmm. and then but like but we see so much more personality in barb and she's oh. so much more of a well-rounded character and again mm-hmm. not to knock halloween but it's just it, it's just different and it's it's really endearing it's okay you know? jen i can see that i'm winning you over that i'm winning this fight you're on the black I mean, christmas you side might now be. Oh. it's yeah i mean halloween does a lot of i mean even the dialogue in halloween compared to a lot of its contemporaries was amazing and really great i just oh. yeah i I, 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 you know, I don't necessarily want to do apples to apples here, but right. yeah. it's so just hard not to because they, they came is so close in time. Right. They're both early slashers. Uh-huh. They just get compared and talked about a lot, but like, yeah. I think they're doing a lot of the same things well yeah. in, but just then they, they just have different takes on it, you know? Yeah. Right. I think a lot of it too is the quality of, of performers that you're getting in black Christmas. You're getting like a stellar, yes. I mean, I love Olivia Hussey who would, you know, made her bones and like in, in Romeo and Juliet at age 15, I think, mm-hmm. you know, you have, I, I, you just have this cast of, uh, that is in some cases classically trained. In some cases they had worked with like De Palma. They had worked with, oh God, Kubrick. Mm-hmm. So you're getting people, you're not getting, um, fresh face, you know, PJ, yeah, right. Yeah. Fresh face and they're in their first early roles. You get seasoned performers. And I think, that's where a lot of that nuance comes out. Yeah. And Jen, you had just mentioned like the, how young people can be immature sometimes. And this like kind of sense of invincibility yeah. that comes up. Like I think about the scene where Phil and Jess, like they're locked down in home, they're scared. And then like the two people that are on town watch, like knock on the back door and how that's played as a comic beat. Mm-hmm. It's like the last real moment of comedy in the film mm-hmm. and how they're kind of giggly in that moment. They're almost like refreshed from that moment. They're able to make fun of those townies who are just so weird. And it goes on for like, the conversation goes on for a few beats too long where they can't get them like, can't quite get them off the porch. And they're, I think even Phil's even says like, I'd rather run into the killer than, you know, those two dudes. Yeah. And the next scene. Yeah. You know, she's like, well, maybe, maybe not so much. Yeah. Well, and one of them is like, what are these creepy weirdos doing outside our house, Mm -hmm. you know? And that was the thing that really struck me about Peter, because I don't think that you ever really think that he's the killer. I think you're right. Um, Mm -hmm. But man, that man cannot read a room. And like, (laughs) no, hey, this is probably a bad time to be lurking around. And it Mm -hmm. it reminded me a lot more of Billy Loomis from Scream Mm -hmm. on this watch, especially when like he breaks in in the basement. It really reminded me of him breaking in, not breaking Mm -hmm. in, but like in Sydney's room in the very first scene mm-hmm. where we meet him mm-hmm. just this really like intrusive boundaries it's about what he wants just... as opposed to understanding right. hey maybe this other person has right. different thoughts right right exactly. like maybe you check in before entering yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. I mean, he when when Jess tells him that Claire has gone missing, it's like I'm sure that she's fine. But let me tell mm-hmm. you about my uh-huh. day. You know, he immediately segues into it. And Jen, I think you know I didn't make the connection with Scream, but you know a lot of this is just about how women's spaces are often not yeah. their own spaces. Mm-hmm. How you know men feel like they have. Um, agency to enter them whenever yeah. they want mm-hmm. which is uh, yeah. hilarious and this is the guy that directed yeah Porky's, and, and so. <laughs> like the vast majority of this movie takes yeah. place in a sorority house that is dominated by female presence and energy and yet yeah. like the whole movie i think that's one of the reasons why it feels so unnerving is not just because in a way it's a home invasion film but also because this is a female space it's meant mm-hmm. to be safe where these women can be mm-hmm. themselves and then mm-hmm. it's just constantly uh infiltrated by unhealthy male energy basically this this film is a big old like lesbian reading it's like men just (laughs) fuck off women by themselves are fine (laughs) right even the dad who i mean it's obviously you feel terrible for him claire's father you know but coming in and kind of being judgmental of like the decor Mm -hmm. and shit and talking about the atmosphere Mm -hmm. but claire but yeah claire was just being herself just just you know not she didn't do anything air quotes wrong you know um but yeah every you're right that every male that enters that house is kind of just got the wrong energy yeah. <laughs> right even lieutenant daddy unfortunately <laughs> yeah He's, he does have a lot of energy that i appreciate it's just not I, well he just can i just time travel and date john sex sorry okay <laughs> yeah anyway, he was I, apparently I, living in nashville before he passed away it's like well, that was so my close, chance. So close. It's, I so know. <laughs> I two know. Ship, two ships in the night, you know. Well, if I got my super nerdy slasher theory hat on, which I am want to do. Put it on. Like, I was trying to think, like, okay, so is the sorority house the terrible place? Because that's one of the elements of Carol Clover's slasher essay. And I don't think it is. And that's why, like, I keep comparing this to other slashers. And I don't think it's to minimize in any other way. But I think it's to point out that there are very few slashers that have, like, stood Mm. the test of time that actually fall into that theory because it was a very strict theory. And so it's in investigating and interrogating the ways that they're different and kind of the push and pull that we can Mm. really like, like raise up the interesting parts and see what the movie's actually saying. And Joe, I had not thought about that, that that by definition, it's a female space Mm -hmm. and there's, and I think that's something that black Christmas is saying that Halloween is not trying to say. And I think like, there's also, the male gaze in this movie because and not necessarily objectifying but like we see so much point of view and it's in a a predatory way and in a different way than I see in movies like Halloween and Friday the 13th like he is there because it's a female space and he has intruded not by force but by being sneaky and by using these like accepted methods like by calling on the phone but still pushing boundaries and it just the thing that really creeped me out is the very first thing we see is this creepy shadow like sneaking into the house and that just sets Mm -hmm. the tone and I think that when people say that they don't like this I want now I'm gonna say well just like don't do anything while you're watching it just like watch (laughs) right because there's so much shadow work that creeps me out Mm. but it's so effective and it's just like that presence is always lurking for women and you just never know you know Mm -hmm. one of the things with billy i think what makes billy really disturbing is not just the insanity because you have obviously this like schizotypal type of behavior where he is 
disassociated with his own self where he's talking in voices and you can hear the influence of the exorcist from yep. the year prior yeah. in these phone calls because you definitely have that deep gravelly voice as one of them and you have the changing voices but he has enough of his faculties to pick his spots when yeah. he's going to mm-hmm. strike so it's not just like he makes the phone call and then runs loose in the house he knows enough to strike when there are moments of like high movement in the mm-hmm. house like there's a party going on that's when he hides in claire's room the carolers are outside singing that's when he goes after barb mm-hmm. he very much knows like he's aware enough of what his actions mean and what he's doing and it feels like in some ways he's trying to recreate or create his own family and that's one of the really scary things about billy it's not only is he doing that but he's never satisfied with it and you see that in the scene where it's his point of view and he's rocking claire mm-hmm. back and forth one in of the, the chair and you can see that the baby doll yeah yeah. yeah yeah you can see him very much trying to create his own family that he's probably seeing that these young women have created with themselves yeah and i'd be interested to know how long he was hiding in the attic and observing them before he struck yeah. because it's noted like from the first call we hear in the movie that that's not the first time that he's called and he's called often enough where they kind of know what to expect like barb even says like oh he's you know he's changed his repertoire a bit like he's actually evolved in what he's saying so you figure like this has been going on for a little while Mm -hmm. now god he's such a creepy killer that that shot of just his eye being lit up is iconic yeah Mm -hmm. i yeah I'm very curious because I haven't like tried to go any down any Google rabbit holes with this. If anyone has picked apart the things that he says and tried to say like the implied narrative, because I know you hear stuff about somebody named Agnes, the baby, the baby. Mm-hmm. I've just been super curious if like, you know, just just for nerd reasons, you know, like what <laughs> what you know is he? Because like if you get into the like serial killer yeah. mentality, there's usually some family dynamics that are being messily recreated so mm-hmm. i'm yeah. just curious we can tell you <laughs> it, it wasn't <laughs> yeah it wasn't scripted initially i know like clark has said he envisioned a backstory but he didn't write mm-hmm. it yeah. down yeah right he when those calls were going on like he was bob clark was off camera and he was just kind of yelling gibberish at them i don't think anything no. that obscene and then afterwards they wrote in that dialogue like what would be the most disturbing shit that we could come up with and the backstory is that yeah it's kind of like what mike suggested that he had a family and he was abused and his his mother had a second child and he felt threatened by the Mm. younger sister and he ended up like murdering them which is exactly what Mm. james wong puts Mm. into the uh 2006 version so that's why you get all of the billy exposition backstory stuff is like Mm -hmm. the fleshed out Mm -hmm. version of what bob clark originally said and I, and I will say I'm glad they didn't flesh it out no, in the original too. because yeah. you, you just don't need to do that. No, really. and it, and it's not mm-hmm. scary, right. and it's the part of the twenty the two thousand and six remake that people dislike most often. Yeah. Well, and there's the the trend now that I think might be kind of going away because we've complained about it so much of like let's really investigate the killer. Let's like it's the the Rob Zombie's Halloween, which I actually kind of like. Yeah. But like I don't want to know what 
his problem is. I don't know. No. I don't care why. And I love that we don't see mm -hmm. that, you know, because that means all of the focus is on the victim. Exactly. And again, to compare it to Scream, like that's we follow the victims or the survivors through and not the killers. And I think that's just a really kind of empowering like message that gives a lot of depth. Well, I think it's also an, an opportunity to regender the focus, right? Like this movie is explicitly mm -hmm. feminist. We've talked about the space as being a feminist space, but it's also think about if we were getting more Billy, that means we're getting less of the women in the sorority house, yep. which mm -hmm. then makes the man more important, which destroys the story. Yeah, totally. Well, and I don't want to hear him complain about how a woman ruined right. his life by being his little sister, you know? Yeah. And even like removing the politics out of it, just the idea, like almost anything that you can imagine, it's going to be scarier, is going to be scarier yep. than like what is explicitly told yep. to you on screen. Mm -hmm. it's, and it's all about striking that balance because you can leave too much off and have something oh. seem vague and confusing or boring and you can mm -hmm. overdo it. And I just, again, just pitch perfect writing here, really smart, no. thoughtful mm -hmm. execution and like one, that's my second attack at the hand of the night. <laughs> Can be my personal rating system for media. So, well, because Billy is representing the patriarchy, I think, and the patriarchy is this like omnipresent shape that shifts constantly, and everyone's experience of it is going to be a little bit different. And when we see Peter, I can say yes, he's he's problematic and I don't like him but he also kind of reminds me of this guy I dated you know and there's that ability to soften and then move focus away from like the terrible things that he's doing because like he's wearing that sweater that I like <laughs> but we never see Billy and so we never get a chance mm -hmm. to there's like no softening soften or focus yeah. exactly yeah there's no excusing it either and I think it's just brilliant and yeah well can we talk about some of Billy's kills because they are uh -huh. like the the Claire's death is one that maybe one of the more disturbing deaths for me in horror and it's not gory mm -hmm. no. it's just I, I just agree. but it's so upsetting just imagining myself being in that position and just coming out of nowhere you know there's something right. really uh, intimate and visceral about seeing somebody just get like suffocated with plastic and how it gets like sucked into the mouth. And it's just it's so upsetting. And, and again, mm -hmm. the pacing of the of the mm -hmm. kill, it contrasted with like the party going on downstairs and the music. I mean, it just it's sickening. Like it's you mm -hmm. know, it, it, I absolutely mm -hmm. find it to be one of the more horrifying on screen deaths yeah. as well. And how we keep coming back to her and, rocking yeah. and looking out the window. And yeah, ugh, yeah. The aftermath of that is what really gets to me and like the staging of it, the staging uh, in how she's positioned to like look out the window forever, like she's forever looking mm -hmm. over that mm -hmm. neighborhood is one of the things that is so disturbing to yeah. me. And that with Miss Max's death later on, he could have killed her at any yeah, moment, the moment that she pops her head above. Yeah. He waits, he wants to show yeah. off his yeah. work. He wants to like, you know, you, I think we're all Hannibal fans here. It's like this yeah. is my yes, design. this is my design. <laughs> basically, you know. So uh, I find that's I find that part of it that like the the pacing of it is what I find really disturbing. Yeah. Well, I think he's. I've often thought that the longer the film goes on, the more Billy is actually feeding off of the women's fears. It's one of the reasons why mm -hmm. the calls have persisted for so long why they start to get you know he changes the repertoire to keep it interesting so that he can get these reactions mm -hmm. from them but then i i find particularly as we move into like barb's and phil's deaths 
um, at this point, they're just living in a constant state of fear. Like uh, another thing that struck me on this rewatch is how Phil talks about how she hasn't had a good night of sleep in days. And it's just mm-hmm. like he's he's created the attic. He's turned it into, a, mm-hmm. you know, a showcase for himself. Like he's begun to pervert the space. But then he's also generating this fear that's just slowly driving the women. And I, I... I'm trying to be less ableist and say crazy and I just yeah. keep drawing back on it. But like, he's, he's trying to scare these women for his own perverse pleasure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's very, mm-hmm. uh, it feel it has the ring of truth to it for a lot of serial killer behavior. You know, it's all about like escalating and getting off on and seeing the, the havoc that you're creating and then keeping these kind of trophies or tableaus that you create, kind of creating your own little world out of it. It's very, it's more Dahmer than Bundy, but it's very, uh, it just has that, that it just feels again, real to me, you know? Um, but it works simultaneously so well with the pacing of the film that it, it mm-hmm. just, again, two, it functions on both levels. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, and if I look at Mrs. Mack's death, um, which I love, like, I can't remember what the actress who plays her is, but her timing and her eyes, like when she slowly (laughs) looks over and sees the hook, it's amazing. But if I look at like her death is the only one that Billy does not actively seek out because and like if I were to read it, I would say she's not a woman that he is interested in pursuing you know like she has come into his space and so he has created this unsafe space to prey on these women and I mean that's just such a female fear of never being safe even in your own house Mm -hmm. because I mean you know everyone's situation is different and everyone's relationships are different but I feel like in America there is such a nuclear family is what is right vibe and yes you can manage your house and yes you can clean it and you can decorate it the way you want and oh a woman's touch and give him a man cave but it's always like the fear of always like someone else makes the rules and you can make this subset of rules but you're never really in control and I think it really taps into this that fear in this movie and even in your own house you still need to be this certain certain way well it's fascinating that you say that Jen because one of Mrs. Mac's last line or sorry Miss Mac's line is that she pops her head up into the attic and she says oh, I've really got to clean this place mm. like it's, oh, I didn't it's, notice it's that. a space mm-hmm. that's gone to waste and I I mm-hmm. sorry like just tell me to shut up if I keep belaboring this point but oh no I think one of the reasons that the terrible place in this movie is the attic and the basement is because they're spaces that the women don't frequently visit and they've kind of gone to rot which is why men mm-hmm. are more easily able mm-hmm. to infiltrate them and make them their own. Mm-hmm. They're like liminal spaces. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's one thing that I noticed too, because in the beginning, it is Billy's point of view in the attic. And then at the end, we have uh, Jess's point of view yeah. in the basement, which mm-hmm. I love. And I, love I, I don't think I quite realized why I loved it until you said that, Joe. So thank you. That, that um, closing tableau. I remember the first time I watched it when I thought that Jess had actually died and I was mm-hmm. distraught because the staging yeah, like, of that shot mm-hmm. is 
gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It's, there's that, and then the um, Phil and Barb together in bed are two really amazing staging. I yeah. mean, actually, all the death mm-hmm. stagings in this movie are fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. I, it feels creepy to say that, but it's it's very impactful. Yeah. And I, I for some reason, I every time I watch this movie, like part of me doesn't totally remember exactly how mm-hmm. it ends, you know. And like, uh-huh. and I am all I always have that same mm-hmm. reaction. I'm like, is she dead? And then I'm like, no, Laura, you've seen yeah. this like ten <laughs> times. <laughs> and then when she opens her eyes, but I, there's part of I'm like, wait, am I remembering this correctly? I don't know why it slips in and out of me like that. What do we make of this? The ending, ending, like the really the coda at the end of the film. And I think like um, I know in our summary, you know, we had written like and everybody yeah. leaves, you know, but it would make sense in some ways it would make sense that they yeah. would like they want to let her recover. They plan on taking her. I don't know why they're not taking her to the hospital yes. right away, but sure. She should probably be in a hospital. <laughs> and I think so. And in a clever bit of writing, like the father of Claire yeah. goes into mm-hmm. shock and they immediately have a, an emergency they have to deal with. And they do leave like one officer outside, but I think it's a really telling thing that like to the male characters of the movie, like the danger yeah. is past because they have decided like, they're like, they haven't right. even yeah. done a thorough job. No. But apparently the danger is gone. I know they didn't sweep the house. They didn't like, how do you not Mm -hmm. sweep the fucking attic? Like, I don't know. Like you would think you would be Mm -hmm. like, okay, even let's do a complete sweep of the crime scene. This is an active crime scene. We're going to still let's fucking tip, tip to top. But I mean, Mm -hmm. it is also very accurate to like how cops would be like, they usually, I was going to say in 2020, it's like a perfect right where you're just like, oh, the inadequacy of the police. Right. And it's true. I mean, like if I, I, I'm what I call a recovering true crime, you know, fanatic. (laughs) And uh, because there's a lot of problems with it as a, as a genre. Um, But you know, it's so many cases are like this where the cops are like, well, doop, 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 like dust my hands off, yeah. like not. What we thought is true has now come to pass and we're they, good. Right. We can wrap up the they case. Have, they have a pet theory. And once that theory, they've, they've you know, uh, the exact opposite of Sherlock Holmes advice, which is only pursue that what you're interested in versus having no theory and only examining the evidence. Um, they <laughs> They say, oh, yep, he did it. Yeah, hitch up my belt and walk on down the way. You know, I just thought in some ways it showed that if you're a woman, like the danger never really leaves. Yep. Just because the guys have decided, hey, it's over. Mm -hmm. You know, like it was that danger was still there. Like, and maybe you know, maybe Billy is gone. I know the ending is a little ambiguous. You know, but maybe Billy is gone. But there's going to be other dangers. Yeah. Yeah. Because the men are not the threat, or they're they're not the victims. Mm -hmm. Like it's settled for them because they were never the ones that are in danger. So they can say, okay, we're fine. We've put it into our box. We've asserted our dominance over this situation. And so we're going to move on. And I was Mm -hmm. reading this book. I keep talking about burnout. um, Oh, yeah. What's talking about it. And I just read this part about smashing the patriarchy. And I I'm not going to apologize for continuing to say the word patriarchy because we need to talk about it more. But they were like, you're not going to see the end of the patriarchy in your lifetime. Like, it's just it's not going to happen. And too pernicious. It is that what we see is progress. And that's what we need to keep fighting for. But I think you're right, Mike. It's like this is this is an ongoing threat. And even if Peter were the killer and the threat is over, like there's always that looming cloud that just hangs over us, which is why I think Mm -hmm. it's so brilliant that we never see Mm -hmm. Billy because it's just the smog that we all breathe. And I'm stealing that quote Mm -hmm. from, I think, um, how did this get made? But yeah. I did want to jump back to something that Jen, you and Laura mentioned, which is the, the shocking development that they don't take just to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. just to belabor the, the patriarchy point, 
I do think it's telling that Mr. Harrison is the one who has the physical breakdown and then he is taken to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So Jess is literally punished because she doesn't have a breakdown. Mm -hmm. She just needs to lie down. Whereas men, you know, and, and we can quibble with whether or not Mr. Harrison is a a good representation of masculinity or whether he's supposed to be an effeminate kind of weak character. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's telling that in this pivotal moment after the danger has quote unquote passed, a man is allowed to have the breakdown and he is taken to the hospital and a woman is just made to rest Mm -hmm. and she is still in danger. It's interesting that you phrase it as she was punished. And I think you're right. It's like she has not she because Jess never is the epitome of a quote unquote good woman in this because she is pregnant throughout and she like she does everything that the patriarchy finds threatening and this is a way to to punish her which breaks my heart but i think it just kind of hammers the point in you know is that well she's also never a damsel in distress mm-hmm. right i mean there not everybody recognizes her as one of the better final girls mm-hmm. but the people who do are like she is top tier echelon because <laughs> she is resourceful. She maintains her calm. She manages to fight back. But like it, for me, it's very much her and Sally are kind of like the unheralded final yeah, girls. Totally. And it's because they survive, but they don't, you know, have to pick up the phallic weapon. I mean, Jess obviously does, but mm-hmm. it's, that's not really her strength. Like she is cool under pressure, mm-hmm. but she's also not, you know, the fuck yeah, Ripley final girl totally i do appreciate the final girl characters that don't have to become action heroes you know i think Mm -hmm. i was just talking about that for some other episode that we did because i i think it's more i mean it depends on the type of movie you're watching sometimes you want an action hero i fucking love ripley i love ripley i mean i i wish i was that cool but it feels more relatable to me like oh this Mm -hmm. is like if i had i would never be able to kick anyone's ass but at least i would be able to maybe (laughs) run away from this guy and get on the back of the pickup truck you know i think we'll talk about ripley because i know we're going to do terminator 2 as a comfort episode with Lindsay Travis Um, (laughs) and I think that like the the hyper masculine action hero final girl really is a James Cameron thing like James Cameron Mm. has a very specific view of feminine of strong femininity yeah with like Linda (laughs) Hamilton and you know when you think back to Alien aka one of the greatest movies ever made like (laughs) Ripley outsmarts the xenomorph Mm -hmm. like she doesn't she doesn't like have a Buster Rhymes like trick or treat motherfucker moment where she drop kicks the xenomorph through an airlock. Like mm-hmm. she hides, you know, um, which it would have been a much different movie. <laughs> yeah. So I think we'll talk about that hyper masculine final girl. Yeah. I know we've talked about Sally briefly before. I find her like a very tragic surviving character. And I think part of the tragedy of of the final girl trope is their final. Like their yeah. whole support network, like at the end of this movie, like all of Jess's mm-hmm. support network has been removed from her. Mm-hmm. Her friends are gone. Her den mother is gone. You have to assume at some point her and Peter had some sort of strong, maybe even equal partnership. Mm-hmm. And that's been removed from her yep. and what's left. Yeah. 
and yeah. the police or the people that were protecting her, even in her moment of crisis, mm-hmm. have all left her. Like she is utterly alone with the threat still yeah. very close. Mm-hmm. And I think when I like, I love Final Girls, and I think that's what really I've talked about it. That's what really has hooked me into horror. And I have a big pet peeve when people assume that a woman surviving a horror movie makes her a final girl because I think there's a lot of nuance to that character and there are a lot of elements that make specific points about women and femininity but like as we're talking about this like final girls are not just one thing I think the thing that I tend to think about is Laurie and Sydney just because they're my favorites but like there are so many different ways to be a final Mm -hmm. girl and to survive and to just be strong and sometimes that means taking on the persona of a man and like god I love Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2 like she is I have a lot of thoughts about that but I also (laughs) love Jess and I also love Laurie and I love Sydney and I think it's just shows that these these women are more than just like the character beats in the story and the slashers that really work for me. And I think again, stand the test of time are the ones that let their women or their final girls be humans Mm -hmm. first, you know, Mm -hmm. I like that final girls has kind of evolved since scream to final groups. Yeah. That it's no longer this one sole character anymore. I think that's become a rarity in horror movies. It's now a surviving troop of characters. And I think especially in the times that we live in right now that are so polarized and such in there's this dichotomy in our, in our, and I'm saying our country, Joe, I know you're Canadian. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're not that much better off, (laughs) but there's this, there's this real push and pull right now versus the idea of rugged individualism versus the collective versus living in a collective society. And those two things are really butting heads as we're seeing right now. And I think it's more and more important to see like, groups of persons come together yes. to overcome a threat. Yeah. I think we said something earlier about the nuclear family being this like ultimate, you know, I- ideal and mm-hmm. I think the way this, that we have fucked up, you know, this year especially and it's, you know, proof is in the pudding is valuing the individual or the you, you know, the family unit over the collective, you know, mm-hmm. and yep. and as and you can't argue with the numbers by that I mean no. the death tolls you know <laughs> like right. you can see where it's working and not working and uh, uh yeah we fucked it up <laughs> yeah so. well and one of the things like I I feel like I keep saying all these feminist buzzwords but like in a post <laughs> me too world like we have learned that there are a lot of us we all have a lot of the same experiences and we are so much stronger when we share those experiences and I think a lot of horror early horror like drives women into isolation and I think Scream is really kind of a, a turning point there where it is a quartet, I think of in Stephen King's terms. And then, you know, I know there are a lot of differing opinions on the newest Halloween, but like there's a matriarchy at the end of that movie and I fucking love it and I will never stop talking about it because that's what we need. Like we need like Jess's children if she chooses to have children or like her nieces or nephews like I want her to share her experiences surviving Billy and surviving this relationship with Peter to help the next generation not make these same mistakes or at least like understand more about them because I don't think you can ever like you're always going to date some terrible guy or some terrible girl or some (laughs) toxic person like it's inevitable but like if you have somebody saying hey it's okay I did this too it makes it easier to move past it, you know, which is what we need. And that's how we kind of inch along to smashing the patriarchy forever. Got to dismantle it bit by bit. (laughs) 
Which is interesting that you say that, Jen, because there were initially talks about doing a sequel like way, way after the fact, and it was going to be just as the den mother of her own sorority. <laughs> oh, I want to so, see like, that So like she had the abortion, now. she didn't have a man, she didn't have a family, no. she created her own sorority, and it, it, I think it would have been fascinating to have done that. And like even bringing Andrea Martin back for... Uh, you know, not to play the same character, to play her own interpretation of Miss Mac in the 2006 version. And apparently, sorry, Mike, the debate was apparently between Andrea Martin and uh, Margot Kidder. And Margot Kidder, with, yep. And they went with yeah. Andrea Martin. Mm. Right. Who originally, her character is going to be played by Gilmer Radner. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that would have made sense. If not for a plucky little show called Saturday Night Live. <laughs> yeah. I want to see that movie so now, Joe. That almost made me tear up a little bit as you were talking about it. Because I was like, oh. That would be beautiful. I think, Please you know, well. we, we, we said this very briefly, like way back we first started kind of pulling on this thread that both Bob Clark and Olivia Hussey have said, like, we really didn't intend to make a political point. Like, all we yeah. wanted to do was, like, deepen our characters and give them a backstory. And I think that's really important. I think that one of, and I want, I wish I loved the 2019 Black Christmas. I like it. I really wish I loved it because I went to the mat for it before <laughs> it came out. Mm-hmm. So, whoops. But I really wish I loved that movie. But I think that sometimes, like, it's because the message gets put before the actual movie itself, it can come off at times as a bit heavy handed. Yeah. Where there's something about just about knowing in your gut that this is the right direction to go. And as you're putting the pen to the page mm-hmm. and saying, like, we want to develop this character is like a strong independent person that is like single-minded and resolved because like that's who she should be as a character and then moving on from there i think says a lot about the character of the persons that are kind of crafting it and you may not once your art is out there in the world it ceases to be yourself and we can read whatever intent that we want into it but i think that like whether or not you're aware that that's what you're doing there's like something implicit in your character at that point that it's allowing you to kind of craft that. Yeah. And, and I think it speaks to this I, this rhetoric we have around, like, well, don't make it political. It's like, it's not, like, life and politics are inextricable from each other. Mm-hmm. Like, these are these are just these people's lives. Like, you right. know, uh, uh, having a baby or not mm-hmm. having a baby, getting married or not getting married, mm-hmm. getting murdered or not getting murdered. Like, that's, mm-hmm. that's just life, baby. And, like, politics are just how yeah. we, like, either choose to support and help people or not support mm-hmm. and not help them. And like, if you can't see that subtlety, you're a moron. And right. Go, get away from me. Anyway, sorry, I'm getting angry again. But <laughs> but how weird is it too, though, that like, I, I'm, I'm sorry if, pe- if people heard me sort of give a chuckle as Mike was going into that like really eloquent and beautiful statement. The reason I chuckled is because I thought, oh, okay, so they didn't intend for a message. They just wanted to write well- Mm-hmm. Th- like through well-developed three-dimensional women mm-hmm. and it leads to a fucking incredibly political right. film like how is making a three-dimensional mm-hmm. female character political mm-hmm. right and yet this is where we mm-hmm. are right because it's so rarely fucking right. happening. <laughs> right it's really sad on some level <laughs> right yeah. and i i just want to point out that for those that don't that decry like politics and art and say like just leave the two things separate i want to just point out that yeah no. If you are fortunate enough to just read things at a surface level, it's because you're coming. It's because you're coming from a place of tremendous privilege, yeah. mm-hmm. where yes. a lot of things don't affect you. And I've said this before: like 
the Trump presidency in a direct way hasn't really affected me as a middle-class, middle-aged white dude that's married to a lovely woman and has a lovely little girl. But I live in a collective society. I don't live in my own bubble. So I have a moral and ethical responsibility to uplift other people and, and use my voice for that. I had the privilege of listening to your show yesterday, Joe, with Trace and Lindsay on Mask of the Phantasm and uh, Lindsay talking and Trace talking about Kevin Conroy being the voice of Batman and being mm. an, an out gay male. And the response that Trace got when he mentioned that was like, well, why does that matter? Who yep. cares? You know, and it's like, well, because like people want to see themselves represented on screen, yep. you know, mm -hmm. and it's a really like. If if nobody made a movie about a straight white dude tomorrow, I oh couldn't. God, it'd be I too soon. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I couldn't go back and watch every single piece of like art or film or read every book in a hundred lifetimes that have already been made for persons like myself. Yeah. So right. yeah, and when people say, "Well, isn't that putting one story over another?" and then the bullshit about reverse racism, you know, like th this doesn't exist. Which is not a real thing. It's, it's not, not thing. Yeah. because <laughs> these things don't exist in a bubble. And if we just started making movies today, then yes, let's kind of even out the playing field. But it just drives me insane. But yeah, and and there's nothing wrong with having privilege. We all have some kind of privilege, mm -hmm. just like we all have some kind of bias. It's when you don't understand that privilege mm -hmm. and you don't understand how it affects other people. So mm -hmm. the, the job of it is not to get rid of that privilege, it's to interrogate it and use it to make new decisions, yeah. you know. And yeah, and yeah. to let other people share in the pie that you are eating mm -hmm. all of and leaving only crumbs behind, you know. Right. I mean, it's like at some point it stops to be just privilege and it starts being, you know, just complete gluttony, you know, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and not to use a food analogy because i feel like i've just like food shamed or something but you know yeah. i mean it's just like this person next to you is starving and you're eating the whole pie like fuck off yeah. like you know like you can let, let yeah. you know share, share, share the, the fucking share pie. the fucking right. pie <laughs> like, time for a course how, correction you know right how good is how good is this pie we're talking about though it's really uh, good. i don't you know it's a bunch of different pies. Every slice is a different sli like kind of pie. Yeah. And you just get all of your favorites <laughs> in one pie. Mm -hmm. Sorry. It's like I'm an hungry. everlasting pie, pie stopper. <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh, my God. I want that. Sorry. That I would just be amazing. Oh, fuck. I just want to eat pastries all the time. Anyway. <laughs> nice. Ca carry on with your lives. <laughs> I will say, I mean, I think one of the other things is that not just the discussion about whether or not art can or cannot be divorced from politics. I think one of our responsibilities as people who are consuming media all the fucking time is that we also have a responsibility to be critical and talk about not just the things that are working or that are not working, but also, you know, why different interpretations and why different representations matter. Like, it's one of the things that it's the reason that Trace and I started our podcast is because we wanted to talk about why the representation of queer characters matters mm -hmm. and how queer creators contribute to art even when it seems like it's not even there. Like, oh, Batman's voice is gay. Who gives a fuck? Well, to some people it really does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to give you folks a shout out. Like, the reason I forced myself onto your podcast so we could talk <laughs> about this movie is because I've heard nothing but people talk about how important it is that you have an actual podcast that's dedicated exclusively to unpacking mental health issues because it's still totally fucking stigmatized yep. even though we're mm -hmm. all on pills we're all dealing with trauma like we're all we're literally going through a pandemic that is 
you know, just eating away at our psyches every moment <laughs> every of every day. day yes. mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, it's really, really fucking important to talk about it and normalize it and say, like, if you're having problems, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And we get through it by talking about it and becoming a community and relying on one another. Yeah. Thank Sorry, you. that was a soapbox. No, no, I, I just wanted it. to tell you folks, you're doing a great job. We have so many soapboxes. <laughs> I mean, oh no, I just was going to say I appreciate it. And I mean, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that because that's why I'm passionate about this podcast and passionate about mental health issues. So, I mean, it's just, thank you. It's nice to, you know. Yeah, and I, I agree. I, I like what you're doing. I'm glad you like porn. <laughs> I just want to, now I'm just making it weird. Okay. Yeah. Jen. Let's zoom hug. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think those conversations are important. And I think these conversations are important. And when I look at the movie, like I I do a lot of research about like racism and oppression for my day job. And I was talking to my friend the other day, like I think Hamilton is going to kind of come out as like a really good kind of entry point into this conversation because yes there is amazing representation and that is huge for non-white people to see themselves on Broadway and winning awards for these things which has been such a a white space for so long and such a like a higher socioeconomic level space too but I mean Mm -hmm. it's also glorifying these these founding fathers who did some very terrible things to Mm -hmm. non-white people and I think both of those things can exist in a piece of art at the same time and we have to look at those things because what we do now well what the easy thing to do is say oh that makes me uncomfortable I'm just not going to watch it back away I don't want to talk about exactly it. yeah exactly. yeah mm-hmm. and I think like when I think of like mental health or I think of like representation like the movie or the show Watchmen the moment where the oh little girl she oh. said why do you like her and she says because she looks like me Oh, it just broke my heart. And it just made me realize like how many people want to see that, you know, and and we just have to we have to have these hard conversations. We need to have yep. these hard conversations. Don't, Jen, don't I'm do sorry, it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I will never stop using that phrase after we need to, after talk, about we need to talk about Kevin. Yeah, it's become a thing. Um, right. but <laughs> yeah. Well, is there anything else that we need to talk about with Black Christmas or <laughs> feminism or <laughs> my patriarchy soapbox? Um, maybe. I, feel I have uh, adequately aired all my thoughts. <laughs> right. Um, I was just thinking maybe we should start a patriarchy. Um, recurring bit where i just rant for 20 minutes at a time um it'd be a hoot well okay (laughs) and now it's time for our uplifting moment although this conversation has been extremely uplifting for me so i am just like woo. also i've been drinking cold brew the whole time so that's probably (laughs) that's probably helped it's the holiday season, and we're all supposed to feel joyful now, right? 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 Um, <laughs> but <laughs> we might not all feel happy. And so, feel the joy. Uh, you joy must feel the joy, to the yes. fucking world. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And sometimes trying to be joyful, can you hear my air quotes, is harder than it sounds, especially when it feels like there's so much pressure on it, and especially in this UG year. I don't know why I kept putting UG in all of the spaces in my outline but it stands for <laughs> lots of curse words so yeah. it's an ug it's an ug kind of year i think it's okay to admit it mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh nice oh, I, I applaud that. i said this to a, a parent and a teacher as i was trying to referee a shouting match i picked an awesome time to become a therapist because <laughs> i will never 
ever have anything less than a full case. Though. I know. Yeah. Keep, I keep wanting to ask job security, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so on that note, like it's it's really important, especially during this time of year, but always to like check in with ourselves and make sure like this feeling of joy. Sometimes like I get caught up in the joy train and then the bottom drops out and I realize, oh, I've just been kind of hopped up on sugar or whatever. So it's really important to like keep checking in with ourselves, making sure we're we're really taking care of ourselves because it's really easy to overextend ourselves this time of year and Christmas is just stressful. So so we're going to talk about some self-care and grounding. And self-care is anything we do that makes us feel good or feel better. And grounding or coping techniques are the little tips, tricks, practices, mantras uh, that help us get through the hard moments or the hard days or the hard weeks or the hard years. Um, and <laughs> I feel like I'm being a Grinch right now, but I just I just want to remind everyone that it is okay to not be okay. And it's okay to not feel joyful and it's okay to need self-care and to say, I know it's Christmas day, but I need a couple of minutes to myself. That That's okay. Just like, yes. you know, so I'll, I'll start my self-care. I, I have just been black Christmas, I think got me into the Christmas spirit in a way that I really was not feeling at all this year. Um, and I just kind of had a hard time connecting with it for a lot of reasons, but I, have I watched the Office Benihana episode last night, which is, you know, probably some problematic elements if I really interrogated it. But it's just like I, it's one of my favorite episodes. It's a favorite Christmas holiday episode. And I like I was watching it with Corey and realized how mi- much of that episode I can just quote, you know. <laughs> and it's just like do those little nice things for yourself and watch the things that, you know, are going to be your go-to and I guess I just say that because self-care has been kind of a, a struggle and I just put that on and got under my slanket and I was like okay I'm good <laughs> I'm good for this moment so does anyone have any anyone else have anything they want to share so I'll go <laughs> okay. um so if you're listening it's Christmas morning and it's definitely been you know it's it's my wife's favorite holiday like <laughs> I'm the Halloween person she loves okay. Christmas and I've never been Although my mom just reminded me that when I was in seventh grade, I told a teacher because we had a Christmas project to do, like I didn't want to do it. So I said, well, we don't celebrate Christmas. We're atheists, which, you know, isn't true. (laughs) So the teacher called my mom at work and was like, hey, uh, just so you know, like your son doesn't want to do this project. He says you're atheist. I just want to check, which is wicked intrusive and wouldn't fly in 2020. My mom was like, that son of a bitch is the longest Christmas list of any kid on the fucking block. You can. She did not say the F word. My mom has never said the F word. And she has. Um, probably. But, and, you know, so you, you do whatever you need to do. And she hung up and she was like, I thought that was really clever that you did that. She said, I pretended to be mad, but I thought, like, that was good. Really good. Nice. Enterprising. So I don't know where it was going with that except to give my mom a shout out. I think it ties into like I've you know for the past couple of years with Christmas, like knowing how important it is to my wife. I'm like I'm gonna fake it. I'm gonna put a smile on and enjoy all the things. And I've now come around to the point where it's really enjoyable for me. Oh. And I think because I don't I don't travel for work anymore because I'm out of grad school and not doing like work in school and ninety hour weeks. That like it's kind of nice to throw on like a fun Christmas playlist and bake with my daughter and watch like a christmas movie like on friday we did 
Muppet Christmas Carol, oh, which is yes. my favorite so Christmas movie. I, I like to think that Michael Caine is just high on peyote that whole movie. And <laughs> like, great he's like, oh my God, just like, I'm freaking out, mm. man. I did a double feature of that and never went to bed. I did It's a Wonderful Life. And like two minutes into that movie, just a mess. <laughs> just like, and by the end of that movie, cannot hold back. Mm. And it's like, you know, so little things that I'm like grateful for, like my family, the friends I've made this year, the listeners, it's like doing the two shows are what have kept me sane in 2020. Like without them and not having that outlet to turn to, um, I would be a gibber, more of a gibbering mess than I know. <laughs> Some be... listeners might say, you already are a gibbering mess. Shut up, dude. <laughs> no. You would get to bill- Billy levels of gibbering? I would get to Billy levels. But like, I am so grateful to be able to do this in the part of the pendulum. Yeah. Uh, more than I can express, so I'll be quiet now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I feel like I've used up all my good, like, meaning, you know, profound-sounding things on recent episodes, but I've just been trying to let myself take it one day at a time and enjoy watching random episodes of The Simpsons or, mm. or Christmas horror movies, and I, um, I want to like, give a shout-out to my friends. I don't know if I said this already, but they, like, refurbished for me a gaming PC and gave it to me for free, essentially. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Uh, and, That's awesome. Uh, you know, so I've been playing some video games. They also threw in a VR headset for free because he was upgrading his VR. And so I've mm-hmm. got, like, a, like I, I put I played some VR chat with them the other day. It was my first time really ever using VR, and it was truly, like, magical. And so I just want to, like appreciate my friends and just having that little weird community that we've developed especially over this year virtually Mm -hmm. um because you know i'm alone here and i you know just having that has been fucking like a huge Mm -hmm. profound gift to me that and i um I'm technically Jewish, but I, so I bought my dog a Hanukkah kerchief, but I also bought him a Christmas sweater because I just thought it would look really cute. Mm Mm-hmm. And so just dressing up my dog and Aww. taking photos of him Aww. and while he just kind of stares balefully at me um, has, been, has been a big, <laughs> big help. <laughs> it's a reason to have pets is so that you can yeah. make them do things that they don't want to do for cute pictures exactly. and make you feel good. Mm-hmm. What little, what few maternal instincts I have are just all getting shoved into this dog, whether he Aww. likes it or not. So, yeah. I'm sure he loves it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Well, if I can make a recommendation for folks, one of my favorite things to do during the holidays, the the very like low stakes, um, I'm a big fan of putting eggnog in my coffee, just giving yourself a little bit more of that uh, full fat creaminess. And it, you know, if you're drinking like full pots of coffee, like I do every day, it just, you know, makes it taste a little sweeter for about a month a year. If you're looking for a slightly unconventional holiday film that is not in the horror realm, so Mike, you talked about It's a Wonderful Life. Sure. (laughs) I'm a big fan of Barbara Stanwyck in a classic screwball comedy called Christmas in Connecticut, where she plays Uh a harried uh, female columnist who lives in New York City, but she writes under a pseudonym and pretends that she owns a farm in Connecticut. And then, of course, she has to actually replicate that life when the publisher is like, hey, there's a GI coming back from the war. Mm -hmm. He needs a real Christmas experience. So she has to, like, 
totally fake it and she's terrible oh wow and it's amazing mm-hmm. I'm definitely going to watch uh, that. I, I love seek this Barbara out. Stanwyck, so. <laughs> oh my god, I love Barbara Stanwyck. Yes. She just oozes glamour. You said A Christmas in Connecticut? It's Christmas in Connecticut, Christmas. yeah. Uh, don't be confused, there is a remake with Jennifer Garner that is not good. Mm. Same premise. <laughs> <laughs> Skip right over that. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, the, the final sort of self-care that you can practice even outside of the holidays, I've been finding that I set an alarm because I'm, I'm a late night ish kind of person and i'll just be on twitter or like watching movies and stuff all the time i found it's been very helpful to set an alarm and when the alarm goes off i have to turn my computer off and typically like try to turn the television off Mm -hmm. and i just been reading and Mm -hmm. it's helping me to sleep better because it's kind of like lulling me away but i'm also like getting more reading done yeah what are you reading (laughs) can i ask uh, because I do have a YA podcast, I'm frequently reading young adult literature. Mm. So I just finished reading The Outsiders for oh. like the 50 billionth time. Oh, wow. It's been a long yeah. time since I've read that, but yeah, yeah, classic. Yeah, holds up. Yeah. Well, we want to hear from you. Uh, do you love Black Christmas? Do you agree or disagree with anything we've said? Um, you probably have a lot of thoughts about some of the stuff that we've said. Uh, what is your grounding in self-care? And you can share all of these things with us by following us at PsychoAPod on all the socials. You can also join the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group on Facebook. We post discussion threads, homework question prompts, and questions of the day. And there are some really cool discussions happening there right now. Some are kind of of the personal variety and some are of like, what do you think about this thing that we said? Or just like, what's going on in your life? They are private and moderated. And my Facebook hack is start an account, don't accept any friend requests, and then all you see is what's in the group. If you want to participate but you don't like Facebook. Because that's that's what I do, and that's why I don't have any Facebook friends. Um, you can also <laughs> you can also join the uh, psychoanalysis horror th- horror therapy family, which is a listener created group. Again, both are private and moderated, and the people in them are just such a nice, warm little family. I just love them. You can also email us at psychoapod at gmail if you'd like to share privately, and. Our homework question for this episode is, we did this a while back, I think Mike, you said, we started talking about talking about things we're proud of ourselves for. And so our question, kind of as we're rounding out the year, is what is something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of and that you want to share? And you can share the actual thing, or you can tell us about it. Um, and I've already been thinking about sharing like some of the the pieces that I've written this year that I'm really proud of. And that's, mm. it's just, it's a muscle that we need to exercise talking about things things we like about ourselves because I feel like there's a lot of stigma attached to that so yeah I'll post that prompt on socials and in the Facebook group but we want to hear from you and what's up next for us well we are taking a teeny break before the end of the year but never fear we still have an episode for you next week we are going to release the audio from our special episode from Salem Horror Fest And this is where we talked about uh, one of my favorite final girls, Laurie Strode, and PTSD as we see it in Halloween H2O and Halloween 2018. I feel like all of these episodes are like my little episode babies, but I am really proud of this episode, and I think it's great. And if you liked what we talked about today, I think you'll really dig that episode also. So I'm really excited to share it. And that's going to be in your feed on, I think, New Year's Eve. Oh, Dropping the ball. I know. I don't, yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't know why. No, the I reverse s- of that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I, I even said that. 
Uh, here because, we are. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then after that, we're going to kick off January with a new monthly topic. <laughs> and this time we're going to be talking about depression because tis the season. I was going to so. say, but what hey. better way to start the year than with depression, which we, you uh. definitely will be also in real life. If you're right, me. Exactly. Um, yep. so. <laughs> Some personal experience I might be sharing there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we're going to start that discussion with one of my all time favorite horror movies, The Babadook. So excited to talk about this. So make sure you watch it if you haven't already and look for that in your feed in 2021. My goodness. I can't believe it. It's crazy. Crazy. I know. Crazy fucking times. It really is. I cannot wait to talk about that movie. I know. Let's talk about it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Two hours later. I know. Uh, So we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. There are lots of other amazing shows on the network, including Halloweenies and the Losers Club. And you can find them all at consequenceofsound.com, along with lots of cool pop culture writing. And there are a lot of cool um, end of the year lists right now. And Joe, I think you're actually on one of those. I am. Yeah, I contributed to the best films of 2020 and then realized I had not watched much television at all. So I didn't contribute to that list. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, and I'm on that one too. And I saw, I I can't remember what, I think you snagged one of the ones that I was like, oh, I love that movie. Anyways, um, (laughs) but um, I know you've got a lot going on right now aside from that. So, where can we find you online and what's coming up for horror queers? And I'm sorry, this is like five different questions at one time, but also please tell us about the Anatomy of a Scream podcast network. Yes. Okay. So we'll do the easy stuff first. So (laughs) if people want to follow me, uh, you can do so on Instagram or Twitter at B Stole My Remote, and that's the letter B. Or you can follow Horror Queers, the show, which is uh, filtered by both Trace and I, and that's just at Horror Queers. And we're going to be wrapping up December. We're actually dropping our Nightstream Festival episode on the cell for Ooh. around Christmas. And then we're going to wrap up with Terror Train because, you know, New Year's. Yeah, <laughs> I've never seen that. I'm um, yeah, it, it's fun. It's It's got your girl Jamie Lee in it. She's uh-huh. uh, got some interesting hair mm. in it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I survived Halloween too, so I think. I'll, I'll be okay. I don't think David Copperfield wears a sweater. Oh, I'm out. But he, he just <laughs> wears like a tuxedo kind of like open yeah. shirt. It's mm. He's got uncomfortably red lips. It's a look. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I like an uncomfortably <laughs> red lip on a, on a man. It's always I do too. a fun thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he looks almost androgynous. It's very interesting. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He also does five minutes of sleight of hand magic. So <gasps> do with that. I got to see this movie. I know. <laughs> um yeah and then uh so the anatomy of a scream so we have a um what we call a pod squad so you can search for it in all of the the regular pod catchers so it's the anatomy of a scream pod squad and it's basically a feed that has a number of different podcasts contained within it and they're all limited series some of them may decide that they want to continue on in which case we may spin them out but the idea is that they're informed by the work that Valeska Griffiths does on Anatomy of a Scream and of course Grimm the magazine that comes out uh, by is it biannually if it comes out twice a year or should I just say twice annually 
I think biannually I think works. It's, I think is that that's accurate. Okay. I think. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we'll go with biannually. <laughs> uh, but the idea is that we we've tried to mentor people who wanted to get into podcasting, but they weren't sure if they wanted to stick with it or they had a finite idea. And uh, the idea is that it's all in one feed, so you can subscribe and get a number of different interesting podcasts. Oh, cool. And we're hoping to continue adding to that as we go. So we do occasional calls. So if people are listening and they're thinking about, oh, what's it like to do a podcast well here's a good way to try somewhere between four and 12 episodes and uh we'll help you to promote it and make it happen that's so amazing because i feel like there are so many people that like have something they want to say and or a unique voice and just don't know what to do with it so i just love that you're doing that and i saw one of the most recent episodes was about revenge which is one of my favorites Mm -hmm. of the last 10 years so you know Uh, so good oh my god yeah um so check that out because it's there's such fascinating content there and i like how many different voices it is because you're really getting a variety of experiences and content which is great mike where can we find you oh boy (laughs) so on the socials you can find me at mike underscore snoonian also uh you can find my other podcast the pod and the pendulum we're coming up on 100 episodes, Ooh. which to me is Congrats. crazy. Yeah. And I know that like, if you liked Joe on this episode, you'll hear him again when we cover The Final Destination. Uh, and you'll hear his podcasting partner, Trace, on Final Destination 5. So yeah, that's the series we're doing right now. I think by the time this comes out, we're kind of hitting the midpoint. Uh, Lindsay Travis has come on as a interim co-host right now, and... My God, folks, I really want to drop the interim label and hope she stays on forever because I think she brings like such smarts and knowledge and energy and passion to what we talk about. So let's everybody boost those numbers and listen and convince her to stay. <laughs> so I run that social, the pod and the pendulum over on Twitter as well. I don't think I have any guest slots coming up right now. So hopefully in 2021, you'll see me writing some more for some places putting the finishing touches on at least one draft of a book I've been working wow. on wow. for a long time now. Yeah, it's it's been taking way too long to write this thing. Books are I'm just going to have to convert yeah. my show notes. Yeah. yeah, Mike, don't like short sell yourself. You're writing a fucking book. I know. Like, if you need a sure. 2020 accomplishment, like be proud that you're writing a book. Yeah. I know. That's such an See accomplishment. It. Like I look right. at a thousand words and I'm like, phew. This took me 20 hours. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully in 2021, we'll be selling the book. Yes. Um, so that's where you'll... Fo- so again, oh, um, in Facebook, you can go to Pod and the Pendulum uh, group on Facebook. We actually are... A lot of our listeners here are gravitating to that. And I'm like, oh, shit, I got to actually put things on here now. So thank you for that, because it's making me at least once a day putting something up there. And again, it's moderated. It's really friendly. But yeah, that's where you can find me. And other than that, I don't know. Like, you can probably find me with pictures of my dog eating food right out of my beard <laughs> at this point, which is apparently a thing she does now. Mm. She pulls the huge blobs of beef right from this husky beard. It's a flavor so, saver. Yeah. Mm. It really, not with her around. It's more, it's like, it's her dinner dish. <laughs> Blara, where can we find you? Well, you can find me. Uh, I'm sorry. I, 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 I give you that look every time. <laughs> I was, well, I'm struggling tonight, so we'll see what comes out of my mouth. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S, which is just like the 
red, white fur-lined Santa panties that you're wearing <laughs> stuffed underneath your trousers, creating a very strong visible panty line because you want to have a Christmas delight. <laughs> I, I, don't, like I don't know. I don't know. I got to keep oh, no. doing this. It's, a, uh, it's at underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-S, <laughs> on Twitter. Ho, ho, ho. Uh, <laughs> and you can find me on Instagram at Instaglum, which I'm just sticking. I'm going to keep it simple and consistent from now on, I think, which is just Instagram with a mood disorder, Instaglum. <laughs> nice. uh, that's where you can find me. I'm occasionally on a Halloweenies and Losers Club as well. Otherwise, just here alone in my apartment forever with my dog. I'm not able to leave kind of a old boy situation hmm uh-oh well that's well, not good. purchase a large suitcase for the future <laughs> right <laughs> uh well you can find me at jim Ferratu on all of the socials you can find me on the losers club um and writing for consequence of sound and also i'm doing um, a lot of coverage of the stand miniseries which is just my favorite thing to talk about in the world and I could go on and on and on and did earlier today in our Losers Club episode about it so um, look for that and yeah so that's where you can find me and I might have something new in January and I'm not going to say anything else about it yet but just be on the lookout Um, so I know (laughs) so that's me and that is our episode on Black Christmas this was so much fun Thank you, Joe, so much for joining us and for suggesting this movie and inspiring this conversation. It just has given me so much energy and so much fun. So thank you. Yes, thank you. It was awesome. Yes. And, My pleasure. <laughs> and listeners, thank you for listening and thank you for being amazing. Like Mike was saying earlier, this has been a rough year in a lot of ways, but starting the podcast was one of the huge bright spots and we couldn't do it without people listening. And we are so grateful that you've come along on this ride with us. We love you. Please have a safe and relaxing holiday. And my New Year's resolution is to stop being weird about the sign-off. So <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's time to sign off because we came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And we're, we're all out of bubblegum. Bubble gum. <laughs> uh, <sighs> Happy holidays, everyone. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Consequence Podcast Network.